Hello, my name is Tracy, and I thank you for tuning in to Standard Imaging's Out of the Gray, the world's fastest growing radiation oncology and medical physics podcast. If you haven't already, please be sure to subscribe and share with your colleagues, friends, and family to help these stories continue their reach. Without any further delay, let's jump into this latest conversation. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to another episode of Out of the Gray, the podcast where we discuss all things radiation oncology and medical physics. Today, I'm incredibly excited to have with me two incredibly special guests, Kelly cooper Parody and Elizabeth Covington. Kelly, I'll start with you. Would you like to introduce yourself? Yeah, thank you, Tracy. I'm so happy to be here today. Um, my name is Kelly Parody. I am one of those non-traditional physicists. I did my PhD in atomic physics at University of Michigan, which is actually where I met Elizabeth back in 2005. And we were just laughing the other day about how we'd known each other for almost 20 years and how old that made us feel. <laughs> After I did my PhD, I did a residency in medical physics at Michigan Medicine. I worked as a staff physicist in Ontario for about a year. And then I came back to Michigan as a faculty member in 2014. I was kind of lucky in that I was really the last cohort of physicists that could go straight from a physics PhD into medical physics without doing a certificate because I didn't come from a camp approved program. And now as a faculty member at Michigan, I am the physics lead for Spina SPRT. I co-lead our re-irradiation program. I work on a number of different advanced treatment planning projects and I'm also our department's Associate Chair of Equity and Wellness. Personally, I have two small kiddos, Lyra and Laureline, who are one and three years old. I am married to a brilliant physicist who is a professor at Eastern Michigan University. Excellent. Thank you so much for taking time from a busy, busy, busy existence to share your story with myself and our listeners. I certainly do appreciate that. And we'll move to uh, Elizabeth. Would you like to introduce yourself? Yes, I'm Elizabeth Covington. I'm originally from Texas. And like Kelly said, uh, we met in graduate school at the University of Michigan where we were both working on our PhDs in physics. So my PhD also is not medical physics. I worked on explosive detections using nanoparticles. And then I actually got into the field of medical physics through Kelly. She's the one who taught me about it. And I was right after the cutoff. So I had to go do the certificate to get into the field. And I also did my residency at University of Michigan. Now I'm at the University of Alabama, Birmingham. But next month, I'm moving back to Michigan to be reunited with Kelly. And I'm going to be a faculty member there as well. Super excited. A lot of my research and clinical work is on um, safety and quality. A lot of work with incident learning systems, improving workflows, uh, automation to improve efficiency and reduce errors and also research on surface imaging. I've got two kids also. I've got a 10-year-old Elliot and a four-year-old Alana. And my husband will soon be unemployed as we move, but he is a material science engineer and we're, we're hopeful that he will find something in Michigan as well. Wow. Another very busy individual. Thank you, Elizabeth, again, for taking time to come and share your story as well. Yes. Thank you for having us. Of course, it's it's obviously my honor and, and pleasure to do so. I'm excited to hear your story and and learn more about your experiences in the field. They they seem varied in their origin, but then kind of seem to be coming together. Yes. I, I know that. we all said it was like an elaborate plot so we could both be in medical physics and see each other every year in conferences. And now we get to be at the same place again. So I'm very excited. Yeah, but I'm very, very excited too. <laughs> As soon as we had an opening, I thought, hmm, better text Elizabeth. <laughs> oh, that's fantastic. And, and a really beautiful story. Um, I'm looking forward to you guys getting to be back together. Okay. Yes, we're plotting all that. the fun, cool things we're going to do. Oh, I like that. Plotting. Plotting. That's lovely. <laughs> well, <laughs> to kick our discussion off, you know, we'd had quite a bit of a discussion ahead of time before our uh, our podcast session here about the impact that you're both making in the field. And I kind of want to start off there since we got a little bit of an intro of how you found medical physics, both very amazing stories. Can you let me know a little bit about what you're working with? I know Kelly and Elizabeth both, we talked about your backgrounds and gender equity and what that means to you as medical physicists uh, today in the field. 
Yeah. So um, Elizabeth and I actually were just recently talking about this and trying to remember why or how we exactly got into this. And, and, you know, why we were so passionate about it. I think it's something that kind of builds up over time, at least for me. I think I just sort of got like a little bit tired of what was going on and I felt like I had to do something proactive. I have my fair share of bizarre stories that I could share. And I was hearing things from other colleagues and I thought, you know, how is this kind of like gender discrimination and harassment still happening? What can we do? I do think that I was pretty naive when first starting to work on this. I didn't really realize how structural things were and and what we were going to be up against in terms of trying to make change. It's a very important topic, not only for healthcare, medical physics, but for all folks out there battling these same things. It's it's such an important thing to discuss and and work towards a better end with. Yeah. So I how remember, did like. Yeah. Kelly and I, I was going to say, we were, I don't remember how it started, but we were on the phone one day and we were like, what can we do? Like, there's no data in medical physics about gender diversity, where we are, roadblocks, things that are happening, and how can we get this data? And we just started, you know, brainstorming and can we use the APM website? Can we go to websites and look at the faculty members and the universities? And from that phone conversation that really started our paper, The State of Gender Diversity and Medical Physics that we published, and I believe it was 2020, where we look at leadership positions, the gender disparities there, and awards from AAPM, and fellows, people that hold a, an editorial position in the Journal of Medical Physics. And all of that just came, I think, from yeah, shared frustration and wanting to do something. And I think we were kind of like behind other specialties. So if you go into radiation oncology, on the physician side, there are a lot of publications about gender diversity, racial diversity, um, and roadblocks that women and other minorities reach in the field. And medical physics, we just have not put in as much effort. So we're a little bit behind there. Yeah, something of a struggle. I'm interested to hear your standpoints and perspectives on the recent AAPM climate survey and some of the results as they relate to gender. It, it looks as though these were presented at AAPM. And are these a, a result of your publication? Yeah, well, so they're not a result of our publication, but I think all of the work has kind of come together to motivate why we actually need to get more information. Like Elizabeth was saying, the climate survey was something that was driven by Dr. Christy Hendrickson and Dr. Julie Pollard-Larkin through the Women's Professional Subcommittee in AAPM. And this is the first ever climate survey that we did in the organization. And I was really happy to see that it came to fruition. Now we have all this cool data. We're actually not able to share statistics um, because it hasn't been peer-reviewed and published yet, but it should be coming out. The executive summary of it will be coming out um, next year in 2022. And if people are interested, they can go and take a look at what's on the virtual library to see what was presented. But now we do have data that shows that, you know, what women are experiencing and that there's a lot of gender discrimination, gender harassment going on that people are having to deal with. Yes. I mean, and you don't have to go far to look for it. You can see examples of it on the APM bulletin board, on the MedFiz listservs, if you search for different topics, I mean, there are just endless examples of kind of hostile environments and gender harassment. Yeah. And so let's be clear too that sexual harassment includes more than just like overt sexual acts, like coercion and unwanted sexual attention. There's this um, really nice report from the National Academy of Sciences, Engineering and Medicine, NASM where they describe how sexual harassment also includes gender-based harassment, which I think is what people tend to think more of. And that's any behavior, verbal or otherwise, that could convey an insulting, hostile, or degrading attitude about someone because of their gender or just about a specific gender. 
And so the report that NASA put out in 2018, it was called Sexual Harassment of Women, Climate Culture, and Consequences in Academic Sciences, Engineering, and Medicine. Their conclusion was that the cumulative effect of sexual harassment is a significant and costly loss of talent in these fields, um, which has consequences for advancing the nation's economic and social well-being in its overall public health, you know, and also it sucks for women. So that too. <laughs> yeah. yeah. And obviously this is not isolated to medical physics. It's, I mean, it's all fields and especially STEM fields. And there was that publication out of Michigan from, I think it was a sociology group in 2019, where they reported like 43% of women in STEM fields leave the field after their first child. And a lot of that is just the infrastructure, how it doesn't support the birthing partner or the partner who has to breastfeed and just all the systemic things in addition to harassment that women face. It's a frustrating thing to hear and you know, almost expect that these things would be far behind us, but they are not. Yeah. And I wonder if we could share one example or maybe a couple of examples of things that kind of illustrate a little bit about, you know, what you're saying about how some of us think that we really should be beyond this or that it's not a part of medical physics. So um, medical physics has a list server that is used by many, many people across the U.S. and across the whole world. There's a there's one specifically for the U.S. and then there's one um, that is a global one. And so I wonder, Elizabeth, if this is part of this thread is what like kicked us off into the work that we were doing because we it might have. It. <laughs> it was around that time, and also I think this was around the time. What might have started the thread was the Harvey Weinstein and the Me Too movement. And so there was a, a post by a male physicist around that same time saying, I'll quote it here. I hear about sexual abuse in so many industries. If you're an abuser, stop and make amends. If you're a victim, email me. And so that was the post like that set off this huge thread of just endless examples. I mean, that that initial thread was like, that was not the problematic part. It was everything that came after that, where you could see that we were so far from where we need to be. You know, and I, the most important thing that I want to say about that one is that it's really scary for someone who has experienced any kind of harassment to come forward and report it. Yeah. So, um, and then the, the last one that I wanted to share, um, which is really common. Someone said, I have not read any of this chain for the simple reason that this subject, in my view, has no place on a professional medical physics list. Please drop it. That is one that I think is hurts the most, right? Because, you know, what an extraordinary privilege it is to be able to ignore this because it doesn't impact you and doesn't affect your day-to-day life. You expect more because people are educated and there is data there. And you would think they would believe the data and believe, I mean, it's, they should believe their colleagues telling them this is real. But if you're not going to believe a colleague telling you, at least believe the data. We're scientists and it's there telling you that there is a problem. And yes, it's complete dismissal. And one of the frustrating things too is that. You know, you expect people in the majority to kind of dismiss it, but, um, and just, you know, everyday physicists, but you, you get dismissal from the higher levels in our organization too. There was recently a vote on bylaws, um, that were going to be voted on and all of the language in the bylaws was male. It's talking about, you know, the president of APM, he will do this, he will do that. And there was a proposal and I know that you know, several members brought it up, the bylaw should be made to be gender neutral. It was on the APM BBS, like the bulletin board to talk about this issue. And someone at a high level of APM was like, oh, these motions have been in place for three years. We shouldn't delay solving that issue to take a stand on gender pronouns. This is not the time to take a stand. So when you have leaders in the field dismissing it, saying this is not the time to take a stand, that sets a tone for the whole membership. 
that, oh, the voting rights of the president are more important than creating an inclusive environment. There's actually an asterisk in the bylaws that says, even though we're using male pronouns here, we really mean both men and women. And you know, leaving aside that that still excludes some people, it's pretty common that we would use male descriptors in what is supposed to be a gender neutral way. You know, things like man or mankind to refer to the human race or using guys as a descriptor of a group, even if it's all women. And that's something that I do um, that I'm trying to like break my habit of doing. And the argument that gets made is that everybody knows what you mean. So it must be okay. But we actually know from real science that it's not okay. It's not read generically. I wanted to share that I've been reading this fantastic book by Caroline Perez. It's called Invisible Women. And in her book, she talks about how when the generic masculine gets used, people are more likely... They just are more likely to think about men, right? So they recall famous men more often than women. They will estimate that a profession is male-dominated, even if you're talking about a profession that is stereotyped female, like beautician. And they're more likely to suggest male candidates for jobs. Um, women will also be less likely to apply. And they're even less likely to perform well in interviews for jobs that are advertised using generic masculine. So like think about that. Like women, they actually do worse in interviews because of the way it's written. This is not a, a new idea either. There's tons of research out there about something that's called the stereotype threat, where if you tell someone, oh, women aren't good at this thing, or men aren't good at this other thing, um, then they actually do worse after hearing that. And so by changing the bylaws, we can get rid of the stereotype threats. And um, like Elizabeth was saying, it's also a way that we can signal to the community that we're trying to do better and that this matters. So I really have to applaud the AAPM because they've already formed an ad hoc committee to look at basically all of the documents um, for the association and update them to be gender neutral before the next board meeting. So by the time that people are actually hearing this podcast, it could already be done. I guess that's a light at the end of the tunnel, somewhat. We got to look for those wins where we can get them. That in and of itself is kind of sad to hear. You know, the W's shouldn't have to be an Easter egg hunt. Yes. It's hard to, you know, that's, it's just hard to reconcile. It really is. And I know, you know, we had chatted previously about DEI work being considered controversial. Can you, Maybe, maybe Kelly or Elizabeth discuss DEI and, and what it, what it means for those who may not be familiar with the efforts there. Yeah. So DEI stands for diversity, equity, and inclusion. Sometimes you also hear the acronym EDI. It's the same thing, just reversed around. And, you know, the overall arching goal is be like as inclusive as possible, right? We know that there are systemic injustices that are like built into the fabric of society. That happens because you don't have diversity at the highest level making decisions. And when you don't have everybody at the top making decisions, you automatically are going to forget about the people who are not included. You know, just like where Elizabeth and I work at big academic hospitals, it is designed to be for a man who has a wife who works at home. That is how like the promotion system is designed, the tenure system is designed, the leave system is designed, vacation. All of these things um, are designed for like how households used to be in the 1950s. So I guess I'm straying a little bit far from the definition of DEI, but it's, <laughs> it's sort okay. Of, let's go down this path. You know, we can talk it. about that alone. Uh, there's so much to talk about. Um, but you know, like how do we recognize that? So that's equity, right? That's how equity is different from equality. Equality is, is treating everybody the same way. But equity, you're trying to get to the point where everybody is treated the same way, but you are acknowledging the fact that everything that happened before now was not equal. And so if you just do equality now, it's still unequal. <laughs> and that's what I hope people can learn from this. Yeah, everyone always gives the example. It's like, 
diversity is inviting everybody to the party, but inclusion is like inviting them to dance and including them in the effort. It's not just having people of different backgrounds in your group, which is very important, but they have to be included. You have to utilize the whole team, empower people. Everybody in the group needs to be contributing and not just this concentrated majority of people that are making all the decisions. We will now take a quick break from our discussion to chat about our sponsor, Standard Imaging. With 31 years of dedication to good physics, we are here to help meet medical physics QA requirements accurately, safely, and efficiently. Our teams are looking forward to helping you select the best tools for the job and are only a click away at www.standardimaging.com. You'll find information about our comprehensive total QA solutions, find access to high quality customer care, support, and your regional account manager. We look forward to working with you and developing your program. Please feel free to reach out anytime. You know, in in considering these things with the word that has come up a couple of times this week for me uh, being controversy, this seems like a no-brainer. This seems like something that everyone who's searching to push our field forward, as we all should, would want the better tomorrow. What about this topic? creates this level of controversy and and discomfort. Where is that stemming from? You know, we've talked about this because I think we I mean Kelly and I both think we're we're past the part where this is controversial, the topic itself, like and having to justify talking about this, it's proven, there's data to back it up, data to back it up, that's where we are. Uh, when we published our paper, you know, we submitted it to medical physics and the editors were like, yes, we want to publish this. We don't know what category to put it under. Can we put it under controversial issue? And the editor acknowledged like he doesn't want to imply that the topics of gender diversity or gender diversity are controversial in itself. So we had to be really conscious and go back to the paper and say, okay, this isn't a controversial topic. Maybe the controversy is and how do we address it and what we need to do to stop it and move forward. But talking about EDI, DEI is not controversial. Yeah, I mean, it shouldn't be controversial. (laughs) (laughs) Elizabeth and I don't think it's controversial. But it's just so like, man, sometimes I'm just so tired because so like that other bulletin board post that you sent me to earlier this week or last week, Elizabeth, someone had posted, this is supposed to be a professional scientific organization. Do we really need to wade into preferred pronouns and gender neutral language? This has nothing to do with the science of physics. Others have been reprimanded for straying into social, political, religious topics on the physics listserv. We can respect each other without our organization's guidance. Can we though? First of all, please don't use the term preferred pronouns. You don't prefer to be called a certain gender. You just are a certain gender. And I think this is also like, it's like the earlier comment that we read from the person who said that they didn't read any of the email chain about sexual abuse. Like I said, if you can ignore harassment, ignore discrimination, because it has nothing to do with your professional life, that's a privilege. Uh, It's one that not everybody has. And I think these kinds of comments are actually even a little bit more insidious than the ones who just say, like, show me the data, because at least they're open to looking at the data. Where are the message boards? Where are the, are these, is this a space on the WAPM website where all can kind of comment and communicate about various topics? Yes. So that message was, it's on the AAPM website. It's called the BBS. And if you go in there, there's a general, there's lots of different subcategories and there's like a general discussion section, which I believe that's where that comment was. And then the other comments are from the MedFiz listserv, which is not through APM. That's just like an email listserv that goes out that you sign up for and anybody can respond to. Is membership to the APM required to access the message boards? That I'm not sure. I could, I'm not sure either. We could check. I could probably log in and not be logged in and double check. You probably you can't do. comment, but I'm, I'm guessing you'd have to be a member to comment, but I'm not sure about access. Yeah, so the, the quote that Kelly just read, 
that was in the general member discussion with the title Woke APM. And it's like woke has become a bad word to people. Like it's a bad thing to be aware and conscious and considerate of your colleagues. I don't see how any of those things could be a negative. I get that's why we're here, right? Yes. <laughs> yeah. Because it is, it is such a, I don't know. I guess from where I sit, it's so hard to believe that you see the struggles and, and you see these message board posts that are just disturbing. And to understand where that's coming from is, it doesn't sit. And like with the listserv, you can be somewhat anonymous. You don't have to like include your name and, or you could have a generic email. But you know, in the APM board, people are posting this under their, their name and their professional APM profile. So they're very comfortable airing these thoughts in public to the entire membership. It seems completely missed that, I mean, like like you mentioned earlier, that just the privilege of not having to encounter this on the daily basis. It's an existential effect, truthfully. You know, if if you're in the position of having to deal with some of these things, it truly is a privilege to just go to work and not have have these struggles. But for those that are affected, and where I see the, the most heartbreaking part, that the crisis in it is that good people will, you know, good. I guess I, even the word good, you know, highly qualified individuals would step away from their desired work due to these catastrophic consequences that they suffer at the hands of those who don't have the same battle fight. Yeah. And so APM, they sponsored a viewing of Picture a Scientist. And so I got to watch it uh, through that. I think Kelly was that through the Women's Professional Subcommittee. Yep. yep. Yeah. So that was, that was yes. great. I was so excited to be able to see that. And you know, you just hear this theme from women in science saying like, I just want to do science. I want to do my job. I want to be involved. I want to be part of the community. It takes so much energy and effort to address these issues. It would be great if we didn't have to worry about these things and talk about them on the BBS because we were all treated equally and we weren't harassed, but that's not the case. And so underrepresented, underserved people were having to have these conversations and it like spends so much energy trying to get us to that stage than just to be completely dismissed and told it's fake news. Like go talk to your female colleagues and I would be shocked if anyone has not been sexually harassed. I can think of a few incidences myself where it's a little questionable. What might be an action that an individual could take to find help? (sighs) Yeah, you know, a long time ago when I was preparing for a career in academia, I was reading a book about this. And what it said was, if this is what you're experiencing, you should um, continue working and quietly look for another job. And I think about that a lot because I don't... you know, That was probably 15 years ago. And I don't know if things have really changed. I mean, I'm sure it's different depending on what institution you're at and what your department is like and what your department leadership is like. But in the end, um, I think it is pretty naive to think that HR would want to help you as the victim. They are there to protect the institution. Um, And what happens a lot is that the person who is experiencing the harassment is let go and like I said, that's what we saw um, with the Me Too movement as well. So as far as what you know, what to do, I, obviously that person was suggesting to to change jobs. I would reach out to the community within AAPM who are supportive of these ideas and these activities because there is really like there's a lot of fantastic women in leadership that we have who want to help and. Um, can use their seniority to help. It varies so much on where you are in your career. If you're a student, if you're a trainee versus, you know, someone who's further along has more power. So, you know, we acknowledge that it can be very difficult when you're first starting out and the power differential of who you're being harassed by, it could make all the difference of whether or not you feel empowered that you can say something. In terms of being harassed, like at APM meetings, they do now have a hotline that you can call if you are harassed. So that that is a step forward that if you encounter something in, in the meeting space that you can report that. Absolutely. I'll look for that hotline number included in the show notes um, because I think that's incredibly important information and, and very helpful. It's still just 
so painful to have to think about these. Yes, and spend the mental energy and worry about how it's going to impact your career and or your training when something like this happens. It's unfortunate because it's the victim that's paying, that's footing the bill. Oh, yes, you know? absolutely. It's, you know, finding and relocating. And there's a lot of implications there, you know, especially, I mean, like myself uh, being of a family, you consider relocating and that there's consequences to those things, schools and the list is endless. It's, it's, it truly is an existential, not to reuse the word again, you know, but it affects every aspect of life when the suggestion and maybe the best possible end is to switch your place of employment to try to find some type of refuge from these problems. And I'll say like, even if you haven't been harassed, this is something that you constantly have to think about. So I know when I was finishing my training university, University of Michigan, and I was going to look for my first faculty position. I had to like vet places and call people to be like, is this an okay environment? So, you know, when I interviewed at, at UAB, there were no women on the faculty in the physics group. And so I was like, is this a huge red flag? So I, you know, I called people that had worked with them that knew the group well and said, you know, what's the environment here? Any red flags? And you know, it turned out there were no red flags and this is a great group and I, I've, I've loved being here. But, you know, you just have to spend a lot of extra energy and do a lot more field work to make sure that you're not going to end up in a toxic environment. The interviewee becomes the interviewer. Yes. <laughs> you got to do all your recon on the side. And the other thing is like when you're doing that, you're unco- uncovering you know, maybe some places that aren't so great, or if you're leaving a situation that isn't so great, that problem like continues to exist. You're just, you're leaving it behind and that weighs on you too, because you know, it's going to keep happening. It keeps going on even if you leave. Yeah. And I know like I called some other, I called and asked about other institutions and you'd hear from other women like, oh no, you don't want to go there. Their chair is not, you know... You, that's not the environment you want to be in. So you don't even apply there. And I just think like, oh, it must be so nice to not have to worry about that, to not have to worry about being discriminated against and um, being treated second class because of you know your gender or your race or your sexual orientation. You can just pick a place and just assume you will thrive there. <laughs> just, just do take science. A yeah. yeah, just do the science. Oh. Yeah, I certainly appreciate. I know this is a difficult, uh, a difficult topic to broach. I'm not sure why it should be on everybody's plates, but I certainly appreciate you both being willing to come forward and share these things and help us all learn, learn and grow. I'm interested. You know, we we talked a bit about what the future looks like. You know, what we're doing now, changing the bylaws. These seem to be steps forward. What other steps forward are you seeing, if any, and and if none now, what might the next steps forward look like? Yeah, so there is a lot of activity in AAPM going on right now. So we mentioned the Women's Professional Subcommittee, but that is being reorganized a little bit. And we're going to have an an EDI committee, so EDIC. Um, And underneath that, we're going to have a series of committees. So um, Women's Professional Subcommittee is going to be part of that. And then there's some other affinity groups that have been approved. So like the sexual and gender minority subcommittee, there's a Hispanic and, and Latinx subcommittee. And I'm going to forget the last one, but there's another one. Um, and I think there's going to be more to come. And, and that's going to be fantastic in terms of finding those safe spaces, those groups that you can go to when you have a problem because they're going to understand what you're going through and they're going to help you all together, right? And raising up those voices and giving them a megaphone to say, look, here's what's not working. Um, you know, we need everybody's help with this. And so I'm, I'm really excited to see WAPM doing that. And, you know, like we mentioned, there's, there's many people in the organization who are active in this space and writing papers and talking about it at meetings. In the last AAPM meeting that we had this summer, there were, I can't even remember how many, but there were so many sessions about EDI from all kinds of people that I, you know, hadn't met before. I got to meet really cool people who are working on this. Um, and it was great to see that AAPM 
accepted so many abstracts and had so many sessions about this. Yeah. And I will say like these groups, it's not just about, you know, EDI. They have tangible benefits to the science and to the community. So, you know, I joined the Latinx community in medical physics and I'm working on a task group to, you know, update standardized nomenclature and radiation oncology. And one of our charges right now is to translate the charges into Spanish. And so being in that group, I was able to find other medical physicists who speak Spanish so we can work on translating these things, you know, which will improve the quality of our data collection and hopefully care for all patients by, you know, having these nomenclature standards in other languages. So these communities, you know, they're, they serve multiple purposes of supporting each other, you know, EDI efforts, but also they're, you know, they'll have tangible impacts to our field and, and, um, and patient care as well. Yeah. I mean, I think Elizabeth really said it perfectly there. Like the best, we all want to take the best care of our patients, right? Like that's why we're here. That's the science that we want to do. That's why we decided to go into medical physics and we do EDI work because we believe that is what gets us to that point. And I, I think some of the people who feel that this is controversial, I think that's also what they want. They want to take the best care of patients, but they see this as like diluting that, right? And, and don't understand the example that Elizabeth just gave about having a diverse group who has all these different skills and they're thinking about different things. So I wonder if we can kind of like come together around that one point, like we all want to do what's best for the patients. That's absolutely true. And I agree, beautifully stated. Lots of good points. There are so many, so many things that we could do to to look forward and um, put the patients at the center. But like you said, not not have to worry about who we are coming into the office and and not being safe. And like, Again, you go back to the data, and I think we linked this paper. I can't remember the author at this time. You know, women and minorities are more likely to serve a patient population that is underserved. So when you exclude women and minorities from the field, you're, you're harming patient populations. That's why we need these inclusive environments. This is why we need diversity. It benefits patients and patient care. It's important, and we can't lose sight of that. Absolutely. So much potential, it would be a shame to lose that. We don't want, you know, we want to increase. Plus, anyone who wants to be a medical physicist should be able to. Like, but <laughs> yes, you know, yes, <laughs> absolutely. At the end of the day, I think you know that's uh, it's just it is truly like you said, Elizabeth baked in. It's baked in, but recognizing it, being aware, I kind of with you. The word woke has kind of reached a place where it's no longer considered a good thing, but it is not a bad thing to be aware and be able to recognize these inequities, these struggles that we've been kind of conditioned to believe are okay or not okay. Not to change subjects, but I, I did have a little note here about the research that you both have participated in and wanted to take a quick a quick minute here. I, and we, we touched on it briefly earlier, but... Would you like to expound upon that research and, and your findings? Yeah. So Elizabeth and I are, are both working on a qualitative interview study right now. Um, this was my first experience doing qualitative science. Um, I'm a very like numbers-oriented person. Um, I had no idea about qualitative stuff. But anyways, I stayed by some miracle I think Martha Matuzak took me outside to get some fresh air and ended up being okay. Um, but I was sitting at the table with Rashma Jagzi, who is like renowned in the fields for her work in gender equity in academic medicine. And she was talking about this. And I said, I don't really know much about what's going on in medical physics. Um, now, of course, there, there were a lot of things going on. I just like didn't really know much about it at the time. And, and this was before 2019 when... Elizabeth and I were working on that that other paper. And she said, well, why don't you do an interview study? And you could like talk to people and, and find out what their experiences are. And I was like, I don't know what that means. <laughs> so she kind of, um, she connected me with our Center for Bioethics and Social Sciences and Medicine at Michigan. Um, and I've been working with uh, just a fantastic, um, senior research assistant there. Um, his name is Carrie Ryan. 
And we essentially like put together this interview study where we were going to talk to medical physicists across the country, both staff, faculty, and residents, and ask them questions about mentorship, work-life integration, and discrimination that they've experienced. So essentially, like how qualitative research works is you... And this is going to be a very poor description because I am by no means an expert, but you you collect these narratives from people who tell their like real life on the ground, personal stories of what has happened for them. And then there are like specific qualitative methods that you can apply to those data to pull out like themes and understand what's going on. And the idea is that that would then future work. So you acknowledge that Yes, you're only able to sample a small subset of people in that way with such an in-depth interview. But this is a way that we can like complement and inform a more quantitative instrument, like a survey or something. It would tell us, like, okay, you know, a lot of our people talked about parental leave was a big problem. So let's ask everybody about parental leave, you know, something like that. And so the what we found out from this study has been really astounding, just like hearing people's stories um, and what they went through. Um, we heard a lot of examples about people who are basically like harassed out of their jobs, had to change positions, were separated from their families, um, their work was stolen from them, they were punished for having children. So you can see a lot of these data published already. We have one paper that's in advances in radiation oncology about gender differences in work-life integration among medical physicists. And we have some more that will hopefully be coming out right now. Elizabeth and I are working on the one that focuses specifically on discrimination. We shared some of those data at the AAPM meeting from just this past summer. So people want to go back and listen to that talk. It was called Picture a Scientist as a follow-up from the webinar that Elizabeth mentioned. And uh, that was a really nice session, actually, because we made it like partly interactive. Um, and, and we had a, a very robust discussion at the end about parental leave because uh, I can't remember exactly what sparked it, but I, I mentioned something like my husband, who um, is a professor at Eastern Michigan, when we had our first kiddo, he wasn't tenured yet. And there was this real fear that if he were to take parental leave, it could impact like what happened going forward. And so, you know, that really impacted our decision in terms of who was going to take what time off and when. And then all of a sudden everyone was like, oh my gosh, I need to, I want to share my story about what happened with parental leave. And you could just see how much people wanted and needed to talk about what was going on. That was a long answer to your question. <laughs> we could have a whole podcast yeah. about parental leave. Yeah. Like we talk about this a lot. And, and we how, should. Yeah. Uh, because that impacts all parents. It impacts teams, the whole team, everyone, the family unit. But I found that when you're in environments where family is, I mean, understood that the, there's things that happen, the work life improves exponentially. Because there is no longer this looming stress of, you know, what if I need, you know, this or what if I need like a, a leave or time off to, to care for a sick one or I, you know, there's a, chi- a new child in the family and there's obviously a parent, you know, that needs parents at home to care. When those issues are not, are not issues, you find that work life improves not just for the individual, but for the entire organization. Yeah. So is both- that- both parents need leave. And, mm-hmm. you know, if there's a man in the partnership, the man also needs to take the leave as well if it's offered. And institutions should not put pressure on them or, or, or penalize them because, you know, as women or the birthing partner, you, you have to take the leave. You're recovering from like a traumatic medical event. And when you have the liberty to not take the leave, maybe take the leave, they take the leave. They, you know, they blame maternity leave on gender pay gaps. So let's have the male partner take leave as well and see if that actually addresses it. And it, and I know it comes on both ways. Like a lot of, a lot of men want to take the leave and feel pressured not to, or they get guilted into coming back early. 
Or the most frustrating one is taking the leave and using it to work and catch up on research and publish the whole time, further widening that gap. So please, everybody take the leave that is offered to you. Yeah. And you might just have to suffer through like some comments and a penalty to your career. You might have to live with that because guess what? The rest of us have to live with it. And you know, the more we do it, the more normal it will become. That's another thing that I was reading in the Invisible Women book was that, you know, women are treated so differently from men and expected to act so differently that when you don't act that way, when you speak loudly at meetings, when you sit in the front, when you ask lots of questions, you're labeled as like aggressive, whereas a man is labeled as assertive. And there's basically no definition of a woman that is good for leadership, right? Because if you have like the leadership qualities that you would need, you're also labeled as like unlikable. And so maybe that's something that we just need to like, our generation has to kind of like suffer through it to normalize it. And I think a lot of, a lot of people are doing that. You know, they're kind of just like pushing through. I mean, it's sad that it has to be that way, but to kind of break these gender norms, maybe that's what we need to do. Yeah, you're spot on there. I've noticed similar things too. You standing up for yourself in one pair of shoes looks a lot different and is called different things than standing up for yourself in a, in a different set. It's unfortunate, but it definitely needs to break. And, and those, those are the steps forward that I agree that we should be taking despite the discomfort that's going to come along with that. I'm interested in, um, the work you, could, you you both are doing it's it's uh, impactful and incredibly important to the the medical physicist of tomorrow. Considering the efforts that going forward with your research, and you mentioned it would be published next year. There's one manuscript that's been published in Advances in Radiation Oncology. People can check that out right now, called Gender Differences in Work Life Integration in Medical Physics, and then. We're hoping that there's going to be a couple more coming out within the next year since that that was a huge study. Um, they were hour-long interviews. A lot of data came out of that. Great advice uh, for the listeners and, and folks that are looking to learn more. I did have a couple of notes here about ways that we might consider further improvements, one of which being extending seed funding and uh, time since graduation requirements. Can you speak a little bit more to things like that here, ideas for improvement? Yeah, actually, I'm so excited to tell you that proposal to extend the seed funding was accepted. So maybe just a little bit of background here. Mm-hmm. Um, there were some prior studies about how successful AAPM members had been at obtaining external funding from like the NIH, NCI. And essentially what that showed is that, you know, even controlling for the fact that there are significantly more men than women in AAPM, men are a little bit more than twice as likely as women to hold external funding. And one of the ways that you can be successful in getting external funding is if you have like preliminary data, um, you have a project already on the go. And the way that you do that is through seed funding, either through like your institution or from a professional society. So AAPM has a, an awesome program that they've had for many, many years where you can apply for $25,000 if you're basically an early career physicist. Um, you haven't had a previous big award like that to hopefully lead you to get one of those awards. But they had a, a requirement that you needed to be five years or less from obtaining your PhD. And I think this is an example of where when you don't have everybody at the table making a decision, you accidentally make a decision that is not equitable. Because a lot of people are taking time off from their careers around that time due to family care responsibilities, which primarily is going to be impacting women. And so setting the rule like that, you know, essentially can leave out a certain group of people who are taking breaks at that time. So what the NIH does is they have um, a very specific definition of early stage investigator. It's 10 years since the, since you finish your training 
And there's a built-in mechanism for requesting an extension. So like if you have a baby, you took six months off, you could just put that down on a piece of paper. They have a form and they will grant you an extension. And so now the WAPM seed funding is going to match that definition. I'm too old to apply, but (laughs) hopefully this is going to benefit some of the younger generations. And I'm really appreciative of WAPM for listening to that suggestion and making the change. Yeah. And then I I can't remember if we... I think we mentioned that they're going to be looking at the bylaws. And so I think that'll be changed hopefully pretty soon. So maybe, you know, even right around the time people are listening to this, hopefully that'll be in motion. Yeah. And just to point out, like changes like this happen from, you know, people in the field speaking up and advocating for things like this. So, you know, I know like Dr. Christy Brock really spoke up about the gendered language and the bylaws and, you know, brought it to a lot of people's attention on several occasions. And now it's, it's being addressed. So, you know, it takes, you know, these advocates and these, you know, people in the field to step up and say like, hey, this needs to change. Absolutely. And kudos to them for, for taking that initiative and, and taking the steps forward to help everyone grow and get better. Yes, absolutely. Kelly, Elizabeth, I know we've been on here for quite a while and I certainly appreciate both of you taking time from your day to share with myself and, and our listeners and and, um, and push this forward further, taking time to to step up and, and yourselves be voices for those who may not be able to be as loud as they'd like to be right now. And I, I'm hoping that things continue to look up, continue to get better uh, for the sake of the physicists out there in the field now that are experiencing the negative sides of things. And for those uh, future physicists who have yet to sit down in their advisor's chairs to ask how to go forward in science. Yeah, absolutely. And I just want to say like, if there are any, you know, early career physicists or trainees listening, more than welcome to reach out to me and I'm sure Kelly as well. Um, If you need anything, we're here to help and offer advice or just be a listening ear for any struggles. Absolutely. We will make note of that in the show notes along with the number for the hotline for abuse experienced at. But again, ladies, thank you so very, very much for taking time to join me. I know our listeners appreciate it. um, And I look forward to hearing more from you both very, very soon. Thank you. Thank you so much. Thank you. Folks, if you're still listening, please continue to join us as we travel the globe, picking the brains of the best and brightest in our field, asking them all kinds of questions about their experiences and hearing their amazing stories. We've had a blast having you with us today and we look forward to seeing you next time. Thank you so much and have a wonderful day.